Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5, where tonight we'll be concluding our study in 1 John, though not in the letters of John, as in the next two weeks I intend to look to 2nd and 3rd John to see what they have to say for us. But tonight we're going to finish this letter in 1st John chapter 5. And once more, as I have the previous two weeks, I'll read from verse 13 to the end of the book. Apostle John writes, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. And to those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death, and I do not say that one should pray for this, for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Father in heaven, as we come to your holy word, we thank you and we praise you, Lord, that you have given us certain knowledge through your Son and through the word that you've given us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that you would not merely put this word before our eyes this evening, as we have prayed and pray again, we pray that you would inscribe it upon our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would give us confidence, grant to us assurance, settle a confidence and settled assurance that is founded upon what we know to be true, because you have made it known. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in May of 1947, in Albert Hall in London, Winston Churchill stepped to the microphone and began to speak with this line, a famous line which is often quoted, though its context is often forgotten. All the greatest things are simple, and many can be expressed in a single word. Freedom, justice, honor, duty, mercy, and hope. Now, the reason why Churchill began his speech that way was because he faced a complex problem, not him alone, but all of the leaders of Europe. It was 1947, after all, and the continent had been destroyed by World War II. And so Churchill spoke to a gathering of leaders from England and from across Europe to make a case for how they might rebuild their continent after the ravages of the war. And I don't so much care to endorse his conclusions, but rather to think about the similarity between his approach to that complex problem and the approach of the Apostle John in this letter to a complex problem in this early church. 
You see, in all of the complexities of that reality, Churchill began with simple truths that everyone in Europe agreed on. He began with simple principles that they all shared in common. And in the same way, in this letter, the Apostle John, as he wrote to a church that was left, that that was challenged by the complexities of uh, false teachers who had come in and unsettled the faith of these young believers in this young church, John set before them certain truths that they had received from the apostles, from the disciples of the Lord that had been handed down to them, which they had received from the Lord Himself. Truths that all Christians agree upon. Truths that they could know for sure. And He reminded them of those things and called them to build once more from that wreckage upon these settled truths upon this foundation of what they know. And so too for us as we come to this letter, we are challenged to consider those things that we know for sure, those things which we know to be true, because God has made them known to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. That is the message of 1 John. And as we come to the end and we focus on these last few verses from verse 18 through 21, I want to remind you of some of these things that John has taught us, some of these settled truths that he has made known to us throughout our study of this letter. Now let me begin with the bottom line, with the bluff. In the Navy, when I used to send an email to a senior officer, I learned uh, to begin with the acronym BLUF, the bluff, bottom line up front, because I knew my captain or an admiral was going to be too busy to read my whole email. And so I gave him the bottom line right there and then so that he could decide whether or not the rest of the email was worth his time. If he already had an awareness or the bottom line was enough for him to make a decision, then he could make a decision and move on to the next task. Well, let me give you the bottom line up front. The bottom line in this letter is right there in verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. At first blush, it's a strange verse. It seems not to have anything to do with what John has been talking about. But if we reflect on all that he has been saying throughout this letter, we realize that it makes perfect sense for John to give this final admonition as his final words in this letter to these churches to whom he has written. You see, they were faced with the problem of idolatry, just not the idolatry that we might imagine. When we think of idolatry, we think of statues, the kind of idols that that uh, people might put on their porch still today as as decoration, but the kind of idols that were commonly worshipped in the pagan Roman world. That's what we think about when we think about idolatry. But the truth of the matter is idolatry is a much more expansive reality than this. Idolatry is to worship anyone or anything other than the triune God. And the problem that faced this church was that false teachers were saying things that were not true about our triune God. And primarily, they were saying things that were not true about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Not only were they denying His person and work with their words, but they were denying His person and work in their lives. They claimed to have a relationship with the one true God, and yet their lives demonstrated that they did not truly have this relationship. And yet, they were confident that they were on the right path. 
these false teachers. And they were encouraging others to follow suit, to follow them, as they were putting themselves forward as the ones who had knowledge, the ones who had understanding, the ones who were to be followed. They were calling the people to follow them in their idolatry. This problem was going to get much worse in the years to come. It was only at its early beginnings when John wrote this letter. But in the decades and the centuries that followed, there would be a flowering, if you will, of uh, those beliefs that we now call heresies. Beliefs that were, uh, that, that were held by many in, early, in, in the early days of the church, whereby they taught false things about Jesus Christ. All kinds of them, and I'm going to list some of them, not so that you can know the names of all these heresies, but I want to make your head spin for a minute. You see, there was Ebionism, which claimed that Jesus wasn't always the Son of God, but that He was rather adopted by God at some point during His ministry. And there was an early, a man named Serinthus who was an early proponent of something rather like this, denying that Jesus was truly and really God. Then there were the Docetics, who claimed that Jesus only seemed to suffer when He went to the cross, but it was really some kind of illusion. It didn't really happen. They denied that Jesus came in the flesh, that Jesus was a man. And then there were the Gnostics, who did believe in Jesus in a strange sort of way, but they believed that He was a different kind of Savior. He came not to save us from sin, but rather to liberate our spiritual being from the fallen reality of our flesh. And they wouldn't have used the language of fallenness, but rather from the prison or the bondage that we exist uh, in this existence, in this material world. And then there were others that would arise in the years that followed. Arianism that doubted that Jesus or denied that Jesus really was eternally God and uh, really is eternally God from eternity past into eternity future. And there were the modalists and the Nestorians and the Apollinarists and the Euchinia. Well, you see, these are unpronounceable names, named for their authors, denials of people who denied Christ's person and work. And there were so many of them. And we hear the names and it makes our heads spin. Now imagine living through it. Imagine being a Christian who's meeting one of these people for the very first time. And they're trying to convince you of strange ideas concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. They use the same language. They speak about the same person. But as you spend time with them, slowly but surely you realize that what they're feeding you is not consistent with the Christianity that you know and that you have received. That's what the early church went through. And of course, John couldn't have been writing for all of those things, for many of them arose in the centuries that followed the writing of John's letter. And yet John's letter became very important in the early church as they confronted these problems because of its relevance to those problems, to those challenges. Because at the end of the day, they all share that one thing in common. They all denied that Jesus Christ the Son of God, who is eternally God from the Father, uncreated, became a man in the course of time, truly became a man, and truly went to the cross, suffered for our sake, died a gruesome death, not a mere illusion, but really did this for our sake, and after three days really rose, and ascended on high, from where He will return one day, 
on a day that is fixed by the Father to judge the living and the dead and to finally bring a fulfillment to the promised salvation of our God. That's the teaching of Christ. And all of these heresies in one respect or another denied some aspect of that teaching. Therefore, all of them were idolatries. All of them put forward a false god other than the one true God. And John wrote to confront that kind of problem in this early church, one that would become much more complex in the years to come. And he did not address it by prophesying about all of the different errors that might arise, but rather reassuring this early church of those truths which they knew, which they could rest upon. Like teaching someone to study a true uh, form of currency so that they can detect the counterfeit, rather than studying the counterfeits themselves. In the same way, John held forth to this early church true Christianity, true faith in Christ, and assured them that we know these things. And so it's true for us. We come back at the end of the day when we face the complexities of life in this fallen world, when we face the threat of false teachers in this fallen world, when we face people who deny Christ in some way, we return to that which we know. And we start there. And that is sufficient to assure us of our hope and our relationship to God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ and the certainty of that which we have received in His Word. So there's the bottom line. The bottom line up front. Keep yourselves from idols. But what do we know then as we come back to the main portion of the message then? What are those things that we know whereby we will keep ourselves from idols? What do we remind ourselves? What truths do we put before our minds so that we might fulfill this command of John to keep ourselves from idols? Well, to begin with, John reminds us that we know how to identify who is and who is not a child of God. He has put many, uh, many ways before us in this letter, but here he reminds us of one. In verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Now let me remind you again of what we discussed when we were in 1 John chapter 3. There in 1 John 3, if you simply turn back a couple pages in your Bible, we can see in verse 4 that John taught us this, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He, that is Christ, appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And you see in that text that John has taught us, and again in chapter 5, verse 18, reminds us now that those who are truly children of God do not make sin the settled pattern of their lives. He is not saying, and I remind you again, he is not saying 
that Christians stop sinning altogether. He is not saying that Christians are perfect people. That would contradict so much of what he's already said in chapter 1 about the importance of confession. It would contradict what he has said about the way in which God transforms us into the image of Christ, the very beginning of chapter 3, and the fact that we will not be perfectly like him until he comes again. We look forward to that day with joyful hope, but we know that in this life, we struggle with sin. It's a simple reality. We ought not to think that it will be otherwise. The Christian is not one who never sins. The Christian is one who does not make sin the settled pattern of his life. He grows. He seeks the grace of God and sanctification. He doesn't make a practice of those things. That's the way to understand what John is saying. And this is a result of what God has done in him. We know that those who have been born of God, he says, do not keep on sinning. That is, it's a result of the new birth. It's a result of God's work of regeneration in our lives. He's made us to be a new creation. He's not simply called us sons and daughters. He's not simply called us His children. He has truly made us His children by causing us to be born again, by doing that transforming work that we spoke about this morning. And because He has done that, we know that our lives will be marked by a change that He has brought about. We're changed from the inside out, and so we produce that fruit that He spoke about. So you can see evidence that a person is a child of God in the change of, in their life. Like a ship at sea changes its course and goes in another direction. In the same way, a person when he becomes a Christian does not become perfect right away or uh, at all through his life, but he changes his direction. And yes, it will be difficult and he will feel like he is going backward and forward at times in his life. But he doesn't simply pursue that course of sin. The false teachers were not like that. The false teachers embraced their sin. The false teachers loved it. The false teachers particularly were marked by hatred for others. The fact that they looked down upon others. That's not the hallmark of the Christian life. That's not the way that Christians live. And so we can discern who really is a child of God and who is not. And this is especially important when we apply it to those who would be teachers. That those who would present them to us as representatives of God who speak on His behalf by expounding His Word and declaring His truth. Their life ought to be consistent with the life to which Christ has called us. The false teachers did not pass that test. John said, we know. We know that they're false. We know that children of God don't live like that. That was a helpful way to encourage these early Christians to persevere in what they had received and to reject the false teachers. Well, John also reminds us of other things that we know to show us why this identification works. That is, why we can identify the children of God by the pattern of their life. And the reason is because they are protected by the one who is born of God. He puts it this way. 
But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now, this is a difficult verse to translate, and some of your translations may put it slightly differently. Basically, there are two options when we seek to identify who is the one who is born of God. The first option, which if you have the New King James or the King James, you may see it like this, that it makes it seem as if we are the ones keeping ourselves. That is, uh, the, that, that person who has been born of God it protects himself. You see something like that. But in the English Standard Version, you see that he who was born of God is, is protecting uh, someone else. He protects us. In that case, in that latter case, then it's a reference to Christ. And that's my understanding of the text. That re- this is not so much a reference to us keeping ourselves, but it's a reference to Christ keeping us or protecting us. Why do I say that? Well, at first, it seems, uh, to, it seems strange to speak of Christ as the one who is born of God because we think of birth as a beginning. But here the language is no different than what we would see when we speak of Christ as the only begotten Son. It's no different than what we say when we call Him the Son of God. It doesn't speak of one who has a beginning, but that one who is from another. Just as a son is from his father, the Son of God is from the Father. In his case, that is an eternal relationship, one with no beginning, neither beginning nor end, and yet it is a real relationship. He is the one who is forever and always, eternally begotten of God. And this makes sense in the larger context because John has unfolded many ways in which he is the one who protects us. John does not state that we are the ones who keep or protect ourselves. No, it's Christ who is the one who's protecting us so that the evil one cannot touch us. Now, how does he protect us? Here we simply need to remind ourselves of those things which John has laid out for us throughout this letter. We've seen them, for instance, in 1 John chapter 1. And I'll simply remind you of several things that Christ does whereby he protects us. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. This is part of His work of keeping us, of protecting us from the evil one. Similarly, if we, if we scan down to chapter 2, we see that John will call Him in verse 1 our advocate. That is, He is our defender, like a defense attorney who advocates on our behalf. He mediates for us before the Father. He is our advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is also the one who made propitiation for our sins there in verse 2. He made propitiation, that is atonement, for our sins so that our sins would be paid for and God's wrath would be turned away from us. These are just three of the things that John has set before us in this letter whereby Jesus protects us. That is, He keeps us from the evil one. You might say, well, how is that keeping me from the evil one? Here, let me remind you what the evil one does. What does he do but accuse the people of God? His name is Satan, which means accuser. He is the one who casts accusations against us. And none of those accusations can land because we have a righteous defender because we have an advocate with the Father. 
We have one who has made propitiation for us. So none of Satan's accusations have any force. He is also the one who would seek to draw us away from our faith. Remember that passage that we read about faith being the victory in this fight of life? That is the objective. Satan wants us to abandon the faith. His final objective is not to destroy our bodies. His final objective is to destroy our souls. So the victory in this life and forever is in keeping the faith. And it is Christ who preserves us in that. It is Christ who protects us. It is Christ who keeps us. So John is not necessarily saying that Satan could never harm our bodies. When persecutors arise and have arisen in the history of the church and have killed Christians, took them to their martyrdom or thrown them in prison, they worked by the power of Satan. They brought harm, physically speaking, to the people of God. But what they could never do, they could never do, is touch their souls. They could never take away that which they have forever. And that's what John is saying. Jesus Christ, our righteous advocate, the one who made propitiation for our sins, he protects us from the evil one who would seek to destroy us. And so we know that that identification as children of God is an assurance to us. Why? Because being a child of God implies that we have a great protector. Being a child of God implies that Satan can do nothing to us. That we surely will be preserved unto the end by the one who is able to keep us. There's a third thing that John puts before us that we know that should assure us as we reflect upon the complexities of life. And I'll simply say it this way. We're on the winning team. We are on the winning team. We know that we are from God, John writes. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. There in verse 19, at first uh, blush when we read those words, we may be discouraged to think the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. But then we're reminded of what we read again in chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The whole world is in the power of the evil one, but that reality has an expiration date. Satan's grip upon the world is coming to an end because the world that he holds in his grip is coming to an end. But the one who is in the grip of God our Father, through our Lord Jesus Christ, he will never come to an end. She will never come to an end, but will abide forever. And we know that we are from God, John assures us. Because we have embraced Christ by faith. Think about how intensely personal this is. In, those first, in that first verse, in verse 18, John spoke uh, more impersonally. 
There are things that we know, but then he spoke about everyone who has been born of God. And he who was born of God protecting him. He spoke in the third person. But here, he speaks only in the first person. We know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It's an amazing assurance. It's an amazing encouragement to know that whatever happens in this life, we are on the winning team. Like players in a, in a football game who go through the first three quarters of the game and they take all kinds of hurts and bruises. Players are getting injured. Their team seems to be down. The other team seems to be scoring points. But they already know at the end of the game their great player is going to come and score what's ever necessary to bring their team to victory. We know that that's true, whatever Satan brings our way. And so we are assured by this too. So we can rest upon this truth amidst the uncertainty of life. We also know that our knowledge comes from one who is trustworthy. John writes in verse 20, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. We've spoken a lot about what the Son of God came to do, why it is that He came to earth. God sent the Son as a demonstration of His love for us. God sent the Son to die for us and make propitiation for our sins. God sent the Son that, so that all who believe in Him might have eternal life. And, here John tells us that God sent the Son to give us understanding. He sent the Son for the purpose of revelation, so that we might know the one true God, truly, as He has revealed Himself in Christ Jesus. This would have been encouraging to John's earliest readers, because many of the false teachers were claiming to have great knowledge. We saw that all the way back in 1 John chapter 1 and chapter 2. When John spoke of those who claimed to have fellowship with God, there seems to be an implication that this is what the false teachers were saying. They were claiming things like, we don't have any sin and we have fellowship with God, and you can see that there in chapter 2. Verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, a person can be convincing just because he speaks with great confidence. And a person going around boldly and brashly and saying, I know God, I have a relationship with God, makes you want to trust him, makes you want to believe him. But here John puts them to the test and says, they can claim what they want. They don't have the relationship they claim. We'd be able to see it if they did in their lives, in the way that they live, in the way that they love, and the things that they believe and teach. But we have one who also has understanding, who is God himself and knows all things, and he has come and he has made God known to us. We saw how we can know that he has come and how we can believe that he really was made known in the course of our existence, right from the beginning of John's letter, that which was from the beginning which we have what? Heard, which we have seen with our eyes, 
which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. We have this testimony concerning Christ from those who walked with Him, those who saw Him, those who heard Him, those who touched Him. We can trust it. We can know that their testimony concerning the coming of the Son of God is trustworthy, for it's based on a credible testimony from many eyewitnesses. So we know that the Son of God has come, and we know from them that He came for the purpose of giving us understanding. He didn't just come to give us understanding so that we might have interesting knowledge to impress our friends at parties, so that we might be able to show off how much we know about the Bible or win that particular category in jeopardy when it comes up. He gave us understanding for a purpose there in verse 20, so that we might have relational knowledge, so that we might know a person, so that we might know Him who is true. We are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. Remember what John said early in this letter about God? God is light. God is light. And the implication of that statement, speaking of God's perfection, one of the implications of that statement is that God is true. If God is light, in whom there is no darkness whatsoever, and there can be no falsehood in Him, there can be no lie in Him, There can be nothing about him that is unfaithful. He is faithful in everything. He is true in everything. And this one true God has sent his only son, who is the exact imprint of his nature, true in every way. And he has come and he has given us understanding so that we might know the one true God. He has given us his spirit who testifies to the truth of this message, as John has shown us repeatedly in this letter. The one who gives us wisdom, the one who gives us understanding, even the Spirit of God. Because of this, we know the one who is true. We are those who know God. Not the false teachers who claim to know God. We who have trusted in Christ. We who have been transformed by Him. We are those who know God and are known by Him and are actually, John says, in Him, in an abiding relationship wherein He indwells us and we indwell Him. You say, well, what does that feel like? I don't know how to know if I really experience that. It's not something you feel so much as you know because He has told us it is so. It's something that you see in the results in your life of a certain faith, the testimony of the Lord as He confirms to you the truth of His Word as you hear it, and of the fruit that He produces in your life. You know those things don't come apart from the abiding work of Christ in you, from the fact that you are, the, you are abiding in the vine that is Christ. We are in Him. He is in us. We know these things because He has shown us it. He has told us it. He 
has revealed it to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And because He is the one who is the true God in eternal life. And so we have these certain truths before us that form a foundation for our knowledge, that form a foundation for our faith. And by reminding ourselves of these certain truths, we will be able to keep ourselves from idols. We will indeed be able to keep ourselves from idols by trusting and following the one true God who has made Himself known in His Son, Jesus Christ. So let us always and forever be such a people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You for the knowledge and understanding that You have given us. Lord, we know that we all fall short of Your righteous standard, but we know that Your measure toward us is gracious, that You don't measure us according to Your righteous standard on our own, but You measure us according to Your righteous standard as we are in Christ, so that His righteousness becomes ours, so that our debt becomes His which He has finally and fully paid for on the cross. We know this, Lord, because You have made it known to us. And we pray, Lord, that You would assure us of it and impress it still more upon our hearts and on our minds. We pray, Lord, that You would testify to the truth of Your Word through the Spirit that You have given us. That He would work in our lives to assure us of Your Word and its truth and its relevance that He would do the work for which You sent Him to testify to the only Son of God, the true Christ, our true Lord, Son of God, who came in the flesh for us. Father, we thank You for Your grace in making Yourself known to us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.